Hi, everyone. I know recently we announced we were going to two episodes a week and then three episodes a week. But you know what? There are just too many episodes. So we are going to back to five episodes a week. Still a reduction from seven, but there were just too many interviews scheduled, and I didn't want to make all the authors wait for too long. So I hope you can keep up with me. Listen to one a week as you're on your way to work or on your way home or putting your kids to bed or whatever it is you're doing. Moms don't have time to read books now five times a week. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hi, this is Ibby Owens, and you're listening to the award-winning podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. I'm also the host of Moms Don't Have Time to Lose Weight, and I'm the editor of the anthology, which you should run out and buy, called Moms Don't Have Time to, a quarantine anthology. All proceeds of that book go to COVID-19 vaccine research. And I'm the editor-in-chief of Moms Don't Have Time to Write, a new publication on Medium. And we're accepting submissions, so please send your personal essays there. And if all that isn't enough, you can follow me on Instagram at ZibbyOwens, and my website is ZibbyOwens.com. Okay, now back to this amazing podcast. I had the most amazing conversation with Matt Haig, who is the author of the New York Times bestseller, The Midnight Library, and the internationally bestselling memoir, Reasons to Stay Alive, and the follow-up, Notes on a Nervous Planet, along with six novels, including How to Stop Time and several award-winning children's books. His latest book is called The Comfort Book and was just amazing. His work has been translated into more than 40 languages, and I hope you enjoy this conversation and that it really helps the ones who need it. Welcome, Matt. I'm so excited to have you on Moms Don't Have Time to read books to discuss your latest, The Comfort Book, which is so amazing. So welcome. It is so nice to be here, Zibi, and I'm really looking forward to our chat. Oh, you were so open and just, you put your heart on the page in this collection of thoughts and (laughs) the occasional recipe and musings and quotes. And I was blown away. I was just totally blown away by your transparency and insight and soulfulness and all of it and your willingness to share it with readers. Tell me about how this became a book. 
It was a very accidental book. It wasn't a part of any grand plan. I had finished writing The Midnight Library at the start of last year, 2020, that fateful year. And I was editing it around February, March. And I have a lot of sort of nervous energy when I I, I finish writing a book, especially that book, because I was so sort of worried. And because of what was going on on the news and the world in terms of pandemic stuff and everything, I almost wanted to sort of head in the other direction. I wanted to kind of like provide a counterbalance, you know, to myself, selfishly, firstly, you know, to actually write something that's calming and comforting. And, you know, over the years, I have often whether, you know, to put up on the internet or just to put in a Word document and leave. I've often tried to sort of like condense things that I've learned about my own mental health and experience of mental illness, which I experienced quite severely in my 20s. And I still have various like little issues and bouts occasionally with anxiety and depression and panic. Um, so things I've learned in recovery, things I've learned in life, things I've learned from other people, an excuse to go off and research inspiring life stories, comforting recipes, my favorite movies, just literally the ultimate counterbalance to the sort of troublesome nature of the times we're in. A book about acceptance and resilience and format-wise to do it in the most simple, easy, accessible, almost non-bookish kind of book. You know, it, it, it's a, we say in England, you know, we, we call them, well, it's somewhere between a coffee table book and a toilet book. You know? <laughs> and I, you know, so if I'm feeling classy, I will go for the coffee table. <laughs> it could also but, be, it could also be one of those books when you check out, when you, you know, you have your arms packed with books like the Midnight Library, for instance, yeah. and then you're checking out and you're like, ooh, the comfort book. Well, I've got to just throw that on the stack, right? How could I not want to be comforted, right? That's like an yeah, elemental human exactly. being. I like, you know, and even down to the title, you know, the comfort book, like literally to try and do a book that is so obvious, it does what it says on the tin. Um, I can remember in my most frazzled moments, and I was having a bit of a frazzled moment, as many of us were at the start of last year. But, you know, generally, in my worst sort of most stressed out periods of time, the kind of books I'm able to cope with are often books that don't demand that much of me. And they don't necessarily demand I sit there with a 800-page tome of Russian literature and start at the beginning and end at the end. And there's chapters that are about 50 pages long. And sometimes it's just a little bit too much. So this book was, you know, I wanted this to be a book that no one would leave a car- have to leave a chapter halfway through because the chapter's... I mean, I think I think there's some like that are like four words or five words. And I intersperse them. I think I think I what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to have my cake and eat it. So the ease of it, I feel, is a bit of a Trojan horse. I'm actually trying to put some, I think, important bits of philosophy, not not just my own philosophy, but other people's philosophy in there, but to do it in a way that doesn't feel like work for anyone, to actually, you know, help people reframe things, but without them actually feeling like 
it's a self-help book in the sense that, okay, I've got to reframe, I've got to reorganize my life and I've, I've got to change when I go to bed and I've got to do this and I've got to change my diet and I've got to get rid of gluten and I've got to do this. <laughs> I, I want to, you know, but all of that, I, I wanted it to be the easiest, the world's easiest self-help book. There's not really a self-help book. It's a self-acceptance book. It's just the kind of like taking a breath where we are now kind of thing. So maybe you can give this book with a big heaping of your favorite gluten treat, right? So yeah. now I'm thinking corn muffins and the comfort book is like. Well, the- <laughs> yeah. I, I do I do reference pasta quite a bit. Yes, my, one of my that's true. <laughs> it come with a content warning for coliacs, but yeah, I don't know. It, it was just it's just it's a very personal book in some ways, even though even though a lot of the stuff is quite general. I put a lot of myself in there. I think I was also feeling frustrated after writing a novel like The Midnight Library, which I'm obviously proud of writing, but it was very structurally, it was very tricksy. And even though hopefully The Midnight Library is quite an easy read for people, it wasn't an easy write in the sense that I had so many different locations and overlapping multiverses and it was like writing sort of 12 mini novels in one and having to research. And also... It was a philosophical novel, but because it was a novel, you couldn't put, you couldn't just sort of step aside all the time and philosophize. And I like, uh, I like philosophy. I feel people are intimidated by philosophy, so I try and do the most sort of user-friendly, accessible bits of philosophy without, without hopefully dumbing anything down. But just, you know, I think I think there's a challenge as a writer to actually keep things simple it's so easy especially in my country in england in certainly in the london literary scene there's a tendency to equate difficulty with depth and profundity and so you get a lot of actually quite shallow books but are incredibly difficult to read which could have been a lot simpler but people are super impressed by them because they give you a headache and i want to <laughs> I am not impressed by books that give me a headache. (laughs) I thank you for just, you know, know, telling it like it is there. You know, that does not help anybody. I mean, the thing that you did too that's so kind of brilliant with these little missives is instead of, it's like the ultimate show don't tell, right? Because in a lot of self-help books, and I, I do read it quite a few, I think, you know, they'll say, you should repeat a mantra to yourself. You should tell yourself this. But instead you have a whole thing like, I am enough. I am enough. I am enough. I am enough. And like when you read it as the reader, you are already doing what you're supposed to be doing, right? You're saying these things to yourself or you're taking the breath, all that stuff in in the way you're ingesting the words. So I don't, it's very clever in a way. Yeah, I I suppose that's it. I'm I'm definitely not like preaching from the mountaintop. I'm sort of like the book is is the therapy by me yes. doing it. Therefore, if you're reading it, you're doing the therapy alongside me rather than yes. me being the therapist. But yeah, yeah, I like that. No one's put it like that. I, I like that. Yeah, it wasn't really planned, but yes, yeah. I, I, I'm, glad. <laughs> I'm glad that was fun. But uh, yeah, I feel like with all books, though, you have to kind of forget that other books exist, or at least other books in the genre you're writing, because we're in a world full of books now. You know, there's so many books. And, for la- you know, if any of us are sort of arrogant enough to feel like there needs to be another book out <laughs> in the world, then the least you can do is to try and put something new in it and put something hopeful or practical or, you know, something that makes something feel something. So, you know, literally with this, I wanted people to feel comfort, but it's not the comfort of, it's not the comfort of denial. 
because we're in a, a world right now where it'd be very easy to just you know spend the rest of our lives as ostriches and ignore terrible things happening in the world it's not for, it's not that it's the comfort of actually however bad things are there's a vastness inside us and a resilience inside us that can actually cope with more than we actually feel sometimes can feel like we can cope with in that given any given moment and that goes back to my my own sort of life experience of suicidal depression and panic disorder and being for years as a younger person in a state of literally feeling trapped like I, I could not get out of my own mind and that feeling impossible so I, I feel like I've got when it, when I'm writing in a vaguely mental health area I think my incentive is always trying to remember what I was like at my worst point and to see if there's any words that would actually hack into that person um that said I feel like compared to other non-fiction books it, I've written this isn't really a medical book it's not a you know I'm not a therapist I'm not a doctor I shied away from even with my own mental health going into too much of a nitty-gritty about labels and diagnoses and stuff I wanted this to be sort of general you know because it's a I suppose it is a mental health book rather than a mental illness book if that makes sense it's kind of like a you know we all have mental health and it's something we all need to think about just as we all have to think about physical health. Um, so yeah. Amazing. There's one part I just wanted to read about words. It's words too. And it's a continuation, but I like this part the best. You said, so yes, words are important. Words can hurt. Words can heal. Words can comfort. There was a time when I couldn't speak. There was a time when my depression was so heavy, my tongue wouldn't move. A time when the distance between the open gate of my mouth and the storm of my mind seemed too far. I could manage monosyllables sometimes. I could nod, I could mumble, but I sounded as if I were in slow motion, underwater, I was lost. To want to speak was to want to live. And in those depths, I wanted neither. I just wanted to want, if that makes sense. Oh, you just so put us there with you. It's like you couldn't even talk and now, and yet you've like produced this whole book now. So like, we know you're going to get to the other side of it. And then you just want to see like, how is he doing this? Like, how did he get there? Like, and then you're like, oh, okay. By saying all this stuff. Great. Now I know what to do too, in a way, but I'm so sorry you went through that. I mean, and that you yeah. kind of have to contend with this. And then, you know, towards the end, you feel your fear, like, I hope it's not going to come back. You know, it's sort of how I had like this dose of insomnia at one point in my life. And I'm always a little bit afraid, like, I hope it doesn't come back. I don't want to think about it too much or it's going to come back. Anyway, so I felt like I related to, you know, that, you know, yeah. like you're just hopeful, but it's out of your control, but it's your head. And you're like, I don't know. I and then I got so devastated when I was on your social media after reading this and and you said that you had had like another kind of relapse of sorts or something in the last year or two. So I just wanted to ask what happened or what that was about. And now I feel like so invested and, and you're like, I don't know. I was like, oh no, it yeah. happened. And he was so worried well, about it and the worry didn't stop it. <laughs> no, it's true. I mean, I... I anxiety is a bigger thing for me than depression i mean depression is quite rare i had depression for, for a few years when i was younger and since then there's been the occasional bout of about three weeks of depression the difference is though nowadays is that when i first became ill i had no idea i had no idea i didn't even know what i was experiencing until i got the labels given to me i felt like i was in this totally new land and I would never get out of it 
And I wouldn't get out of it because I didn't know how I'd got into it. It sounds absolutely appalling, but I used to I used to wish something bad had happened so I could have a reason why I felt like that. I wanted a cause and effect, and it wasn't that simple. I, you know, there were there were obviously causes. There are always causes, but those causes were, you know, there was no backstory. There was no exciting backstory of you know some tragic incident. So I didn't have a way, an easy sort of therapy to sort of address a thing because that thing was me, and it was so many things. It was my whole life of various things and low self-esteem and a million other things, just my brain chemistry and all of that. So a lot, it was it felt impossible to undo. But the difference is nowadays, if I become ill, I'll know that I'm not there forever. So it's horrible. Like anything is horrible. But can you imagine if you experience something like flu, that instead of thinking, oh, it's flu, you thought, I'm going to have this flu for 50 years and this flu is going to be forever then it becomes a psychologically different thing and i feel like a lot of what we've been going through this last year of pandemic what's made it so scary is the uncertainty around it you know when you can't when you don't know what you're dealing with it's a lot harder and that was definitely me in the early days with mental illness i didn't understand it where so now i can have the physical and mental feelings that are as bad but there's another level where I'm kind of watching myself in a way I wasn't. And even the way I speak about myself has changed. Like um, a few, even a few years ago, I would talk about myself as a depressive. Whereas now, if I'm ever feeling depressed, I will say I am feeling depressed or I'm experiencing depression or I have a bout of depression. But there will be a separation between me and the thing. Whereas if you say, and there's nothing wrong, you know, people can talk about their own conditions how they want to. I'm not, I'm not here to preach that. But I'm saying in my own terms, if I call myself a depressive, I will start to feel that I'm defining myself by this thing. And therefore, this thing is kind of bigger than me because I'm a part of this thing rather than this thing being a part of me. So it sounds like a little sort of semantic point, but it was a very big thing for me to actually see it almost as weather, you know, to see it actually, it's not to belittle the weather. Weather can be very scary. And, you know, you can be caught in a hurricane and, and it can be fatal and it can be dangerous and it can knock you off your feet and all of that. So it's not to belittle anything, but it is to say that there's a separation between you and the hurricane. If you're caught in a hurricane, you're not the hurricane. You're the person experiencing it. And we we don't stay in one state of mind um, forever, just as, you know, no country, even a rainy country like England has a glorious, <laughs> glorious sunny day sometimes. And I've been swimming in the sea, which you can't do every day. So you learn to appreciate the moments metaphorically when you can swim in the sea and you can go out in the sunshine. And I have honestly, I, I definitely don't ever want people to feel sorry for me because but people think I'm a bit strange when I say this. I'm, I've honestly known more happiness and moments of joy and gratitude this side of my breakdown than I ever did prior to my breakdown. So part of my therapy and recovery has been to actually rather than be, than be so intimidated by it, because I used to be so intimidated by panic disorder because it's just scary, because that's what the definition of the symptoms is. It's just to be scared all the time. And depression, to try and actually 
be grateful for this impossible thing, this horrible thing, to actually be grateful, not for the experience that I wouldn't want to go through again, but for the stuff that has come in its wake, for the sense of gratitude for not feeling that. If nothing else, you know, has given me an appreciation of normal, ordinary, boring things that before I used to think were, you know, the worst things ever. And now you're just grateful for life lived at a low volume and just being with people you love and going for a walk and all of that stuff. So it has helped me in terms of perspective, because I think I used to be quite selfish, you know, not horrible, but, you know, just a bit too self-absorbed as a young man. And yeah, uh, it's given me a better sense of perspective, I suppose. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, Dave. Yeah, Randy. Since we founded Bombas, we've always said our socks, underwear, and T-shirts are super soft. Any new ideas? Maybe sublimely soft. Or disgustingly cozy. Wait, what? I got it. Bombas. Absurdly comfortable essentials for yourself and for those facing homelessness. Because one purchased equals one donated. Wow, did we just write an ad? Yes. Bombus. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombus.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. Sorry. Well, that's something that you can't be taught, right? You have to go through something really bad to then know how great it feels not to feel bad, whether it's depression or loss or, you know, illness or whatever it is. Right. And that's why people often say how lucky they feel. Right. I'm so lucky that I went through, like, I just finished reading Claire Nelson's book about how she fell off like a cliff and was stranded in the desert for three days. And at the end she's like, oh, but I just feel so lucky because now life is so vibrant and clear. And it's like, we, we end up all feeling lucky for the pain because without it, life is like in the middle and with the pain, then you get so much higher. So I totally understand that. And by the way, I just tried to teach my kids exactly what you were saying about, I am a depressive, I am depressed, right? Like they were saying there was this, I shouldn't even, this is like such a random story, but there was, we were in the car and there was a guy, you know, on a skateboard in front of us and texting, right? And my son, who's only six was like, Right. Which is ridiculous. Right. So my son goes like, what an idiot. And I was like, you can't say that. You can't say that. Like, you don't know if he's an idiot. You can't say that. I was like, you can say like, that's what I said. I said, he's doing something idiotic. Like that person is doing something really idiotic or moronic or whatever. And they're like, oh, okay. I'm like, there's so many examples. Look at that guy driving. Like, (laughs) but it is so important because it teaches you not to judge others, but also not to judge yourself. And Anything that we think and feel is just a thing, right? You can make a stupid decision. That doesn't yeah. make you a stupid person. You can feel depressed. Uh, uh, it does, you know. 
Exactly. I feel like, yeah, to have that sort of binary system that's so rigid of like good people, bad people. The problem with it selfishly is that one day you're going to do something which is possibly on the bad side of the line of where, where your judgment is. You, there'll be a slip or something in your own life. And it's not up to other people to forgive you. But if you, if, you know, if you want to stay living in your own skin, you've got to learn a little bit of self-forgiveness in less than perfect moments. So, yeah. I mean, yeah, but that is a bit silly, isn't it? Texting on a skateboard. I mean, so. you know, it's not, it's not the best. <laughs> it's not the best. It deserved <laughs> but, but a call out. You know, there's, there's, you know, there's a whole golden future ahead. <laughs> but I also relate to, you know, you're saying you wish something had been wrong when you were so upset because, you know, sometimes like even I, I get like so upset and I'm like, how can I be crying? I'm so lucky. You know, how can... Like, I'm such a lucky person. There's nothing that could justify why I'm crying right now. And I can like feel it like mm-hmm. on every sense. And and then I just feel like beating myself up about it just makes it so much worse. Right. So anyway, yeah. being able to identify. Yeah. No, I, I, I relate to that. I relate to that. I feel like because I always say about from a mental health standpoint, what one of the one of the reasons it's so hard to break the cycle sometimes is you get depressed about the depression. You get anxious about the anxiety. You panic about the panic attacks. So you just, it, it's self-feeding. And yeah. so, so, so the only way out of that loop involves some deep, deep acceptance sometimes. Like, I mean, you know, depression still is a, a mysterious thing. And I definitely do not have the, the secret to how to beat depression. In terms of panic attacks, but that's one thing I'm really proud of because I used to, I mean, panic attacks used to dog my life. I used to have multiple panic attacks a day. And between panic attacks, it wasn't like I was in a nice zone. I was just in continual dread of the next <laughs> panic attack. And that dread was making the next panic attack. It was working on the next panic attack happening. So you'd swing between this sort of depression and dread and then total heart-pounding fear. And that was, you know, it's... It, I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna compare it to anyone else's experience. But it, in my own life, that was the worst thing I've ever known. And to, but, but now I don't have, have panic attacks. I haven't had panic attacks for years. I have had feelings at the start of a panic attack, which rise up for no reason. And that was always the scary thing for me, because if you're panicking because there's a bear that's just broken into your house, then that's terrifying because of the bear. But when you're panicking because of the panic, it's terrifying because of you. So right. that's a that's a whole, you are the bear. So it's a whole different level. I'm sorry so, to even like have you be thinking about this. I feel like I'm totally stressing you out by making no, you like talk fun. about this again. I'm sorry. It's good. And I've, I've just been doing a lot of PR in England for the comfort book, which has, yeah, it's been hour after hour of turning into a, a therapy session. So I'm, I'm probably just extending my therapy session here. I'm sorry. No, no. <laughs> it's yeah. But with panic attacks, it's like, I almost had to get to a point where I, I wanted them. I wanted this terrible thing. And the, the, the way I justified it was that if you go to the gym and you're doing tough exercise, there's people who want it to feel hard. So I, I was like wanting this thing that was mentally hard and to see how I would respond to this mentally hard thing. And of course, once you start playing that little mind game, the panic starts to lose a bit of interest because the panic doesn't want to be wanted. Fear fear doesn't want to be wanted. Fear wants to be feared. So you, you have to almost sort of like give as many, hack into your body as, as many signals as possible that tells your body 
but actually you're not bothered about it. I think that's why people bang on about breathing all the time because breathing is just a great way to, to, to change the barometer of your body to actually, you know, I don't think breathing is the sort of cure for everything, but actually when it comes to fear and anxiety, it's, it's kind of a good way to actually slow things down. So sometimes I'll just slow my breathing down, lie on the floor and just allow it, ha- allow it to happen. Do this thing called square breathing. Have you heard of square breathing? I'm turning no, this no. into a very, um, into a wellness channel. I'm sorry. Great, perfect. But, Great. I mean, I can, I'll, I'll take all the help I can get. Bring it on. But yeah. Where you breathe slowly for four, hold for four, exhale for four, hold for four. And as you're doing it, you kind of picture it. You can close your eyes and you, you picture the square forming and you do it four times over. And it's a technique we use in the military. And you, you feel like, well, if it's a technique used by the military, whatever you think of the military, they're not, you know, they're not hippy dippy. They're not, you know, they're not all dressed in hemp and, you know, going on. So I, I always feel like, okay, there might be some science behind that. So I do square breathing quite oh. a bit. And, um, I'm going to yeah. try, I'm anyway, gonna try I'm that. Rambling, I'm rambling. No, that's okay. I'm going to try square breathing. I think that's awesome. <laughs> yeah. Fantastic. So quickly then, and there were so many other things I wanted to ask about your grandmother in Vienna and like, you know, World War II. I mean, there's so much other stuff in this book, by the way, which was amazing. But I wanted to know if you're working on anything else. And I wanted to see if you had advice for aspiring authors, which I'm sure you get asked a lot, but I, I have to ask. because Okay. Curious. Yeah. But working on anything else question, that is just, honestly, I would rather talk about my worst mental health experiences okay let's I, skip no, let's I'm skip it no, no 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 it's fine it's good <laughs> i don't really i don't care that much let's skip it yeah i'll, no, I'll just like I, no it's, it's interesting in the sense that people imagine if you had quite a successful book like the uh, first time i've had a really successful book in america is the midnight library you know and it, uh, some americans even think it's my first book and it's like my 21st <laughs> book but if we imagine that okay after that you'd be on this sort of like creative high and just wanting to be and actually I've really found it hard to actually get thinking of uh, another novel I have got ideas but my ability to judge which ideas are the ones versus which ideas are the ones I should be ignoring is quite hard to do when you're in the middle of sort of publicity blitzes and things like that so I'm sure I'll get some space I have an idea about doing a, a kind of sequel to Hansel and Gretel but set in the 1980s, largely, a bit of present day, a bit of the 1300s as well, Uh, predominantly focused on Gretel, but also Hansel. And, you know, because I feel like, you know, if you think of a fairy tale about overcoming trauma, you know, Hansel and Gretel had the ultimate worst childhood experiences. And I I thought there's something sort of fun and interesting to do with them, but I don't know, because it hasn't quite, it's not quite there yeah, so it'll probably turn into something else. We will see. Anyway, but that the, does the sound good. Part, that does sound good, though. You know, if okay. you want like a little focus group, <laughs> okay. yeah, I would be interested in that. So anyway, keep going. <laughs> okay. And the other question you asked about advice. Um, yeah, I mean, I I used to teach creative writing for a little bit, and I was the world's worst creative writing tutor. I'm really <laughs> bad. I don't know why. You know, teaching is its own separate skill, isn't it? But I'm bad at explaining my writing process for a start and sort of saying how I how I do things or how people should do things. But I think 
really the advice well firstly read bird by bird by Anne Lamott that's a great book about writing I love that book you know obviously there's other classics like Stephen King's on writing and stuff but Anne Lamott is great at writing about writing and she's a great American writer we don't really know much of in our country but I'm really always banging the drum for Anne Lamott um anyway what's what else just be honest and true I feel like in in all things be honest and true and not don't be scared when you're starting out of what you're writing don't have that stage fright when you when you when you start writing a book I think there's something about books and it is a little bit equivalent to theatre where people are a little bit intimidated there's a whole there's so many class connotations and there's a sort of intimidating vibe that some people have towards books at least when they put the author hat on and they feel they have to write in a slightly forced or pretentious way which isn't necessarily natural to them so I think the most important thing is to find out a voice that is true to yourself and that's no no easy thing it took me many books you know I was published as an author and still I would say in my early books I didn't really have my voice it took me till about I I was published in 2004 and I think it took me the best part of a decade I published a book in 2013 called The Humans which I think was the first book it's definitely not a perfect book it's got lots of uneven things in it but it was the first book that I actually realized who I was as a writer and it took me all that time because you know I, I wrote a book which was published and it was even published in your country called The Possession of Mr. Cave when I was younger. And I would strongly advise people who, who like my more recent stuff to not read <laughs> <laughs> Because, oh, it's, just, it's like, you know, like when you have old, being a writer is like, when you've done it for a few years, it's like having lots of embarrassing old photos. <laughs> of haircuts there's occasionally times where you think oh I really look good in that that hair was good <laughs> uh, what was I worried about but there's a lot of times you think really I was wearing cut-off dungarees and I had hair <laughs> on my face and that was one of those cut-off dungarees books and basically every almost everyone dies in that book I thought <laughs> the job of a writer was to be as miserable and bleak as possible and if I wanted to be taken seriously by the literary establishment, whatever that is, I had to do this sort of thing. And, uh, uh, you know, and I was very insecure because I'd already been published by this very highbrow imprint in the UK who published all these Booker Prize books. And I was doing this kind of karaoke version of what I thought was serious literature. And it was just so, I see it. And it did have some quite good reviews and stuff, but I see it now and I, I feel a bit like, yeah, that was when I was most lost as a writer. And yeah, then I reached a point where I sort of, yeah, didn't really care. And I actually just wrote for myself, but in a way of writing for myself where it's hopefully for other people as well. Because the only reader you're ever going to know is you. So you have to be truly honest about what you want to read rather than what you would want to be seen reading or what you would want on your shelf. What do you actually want to read? And I think truth and honesty even if you're writing about unicorns and vampires truth and honesty in your intentions and in the emotions is always the starting point well I don't know why you think you're a bad teacher I mean I thought first of all that was great advice and very inspiring and second of all you also 
have taught me, you just like gave me a little wellness class here this morning. So, oh, you know, you can take well, that show on the road if the writing thing doesn't work out or whatever. But people, but the, the weird thing about British people is, you know, I could possibly think I'm the best teacher in the world, but I'd still have to say, I think I'm a terrible teacher because we're a very confusing. <laughs> <laughs> we have to always self-deprecate. It's how, what we do. We apologize just for, oh, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I, you know, I, we don't say pardon or excuse me. We just say sorry. You know, if we're in a shop and we're, you know, getting in someone's way. So, yeah, but I, to be honest, I don't I don't think I'm actually that great at knowing how I write, you know, the actual nuts and bolts of it. But I'm quite good at giving the sort of vague inspirational stuff. But, right. I, the actual, you know, if I was sitting with you going through your work and saying this, you know, I, I'd, I'd be useless at that. But, well, yeah. I mean... Writing is sort of like magic, like the way we think it, it, it's, there's no, you can't really describe what you do. It's like how it, I don't know, but I, I still like to ask. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm always interested whenever writers talk about it because you will always get a different answer yes. and it will never be a wrong answer. And it's just, a, it's the most subjective, you know, it's not mathematics, is it? It's the most subjective, everything's right and everything's wrong all at once. And yeah, I think that's one of the great things about it. Wow. Well, Matt, thank you so much. This was so fun. Thank you for all of your wisdom and thanks for the comfort book. And I love just thinking about how many people are going to be out there, like in ingesting those words and sort of saying them to themselves and then feeling better. I think that's amazing. So anyway. And the American jacket's growing on me now, actually. Oh, I love it. You don't like it? I like like Blue Sky. Yeah, I really like it. It's my favorite cover now. But at the start, I was thinking, oh no, is that too self-help? But but it's such a nice light blue. No, I love, I love Um, it. It's, it's, it's great. It's it's like my favorite color. So I'm biased, but anyway. All right. All right. Well, have a great day, Matt. And it was so nice connecting. Um, Good luck with skateboarders and texters and all of that. Thank you very much. Okay. (laughs) Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to this episode of Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Don't forget to follow me on Instagram at Zibby Owens and at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Also sign up for my newsletter at ZibbyOwens.com and sign up for my virtual book club and meet lots of authors on Zoom every other week. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. 
From mom to grandma, we have something to celebrate every mom in your life. Every mom deserves a Moonpig card. Get 50% off your first card at Moonpig.com. Moonpig.com